Hi, my name is Holly, and I'd like to welcome you to the only second location you should ever go to. In preparing for launching this podcast, I've been reading up on different cases, both solved and unsolved. But when I went to record, I had to scrap it all and start over with another case. I wanted to save this case for later when the podcast was a little more established. You know, actually listened to by people other than my family. But I couldn't wait on this case. It's just too important to me. Why did I choose this one? Well, I chose it because this case is an ongoing injustice. It gets me riled up, and I don't hope it'll fire you up too. In this series of episodes, and note that I said episodes, this is going to be a multi-parter, I am focusing on a case in which I believe an innocent man was convicted of a multiple murder in 1976 and sentenced to death. Yet today, over 45 years later, he still sits on death row. Why? Well, because the new evidence has come to light since the trial, Tommy Ziegler's guilt has come into question. And Florida hasn't had a governor in the last few decades that wanted to sign the death warrant for an innocent man. Our focus this week is on the Florida furniture store murders, the killing of four people, Perry and Virginia Edwards and their daughter, Eunice Ziegler and Charlie Mays, and the unjust conviction of Tommy Ziegler. This is going to be a case where you might get angry. Well, you will if you have a brain, a heart, and any sense of justice which I think you do. That's why you're here. Tommy's guilt is a much debated issue, but it's important to note that there is virtually no physical evidence implicating Tommy in the murders. And instead, his conviction primarily rests on the testimony of two men who, if the defense's theory on how the murders unfolded is true, might be the actual killers. The state's theory is that Tommy killed his family inside the store, then lured three men to the furniture store, killing one of them while letting the other two escape in an attempt to frame these three men for robbery and murder. Let's do a little background. This is a convoluted case, but I will do my best to make things clear. Man convicted of the murders is Tommy Ziegler. The crime was the killing of four people on Christmas Eve, 1975, inside the Ziegler family's furniture store. Okay, I'm just going to do a little breakdown of what the crime scene looked like, who the victims are, who the accused is, and what the state's theory of the case was, and what the defense's theory was. Because at this point, I was listening to what I had already recorded, and I just thought it was excessively confusing. And that is going to be the interesting thing about this case is there are so many people, there are so many different timelines, there are so many different locations, and there are so many different stories. I think that's one of the reasons why this case does not get a lot of attention is because it is just so utterly confusing that it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of time to actually understand what the heck people are trying to say happened that night. So we have a murder at a furniture store. The murder occurred after the store had closed sometime after 7 p.m. It's Christmas Eve, 1975. There are four deceased people in the store and one injured man. The injured man was Tommy Ziegler. He's one of the co-owners of the store, along with his parents, and he had called for help. Now, he survives this night, and he will be accused of committing the murders of the four people that are found dead in the store. The four people that are deceased are Tommy's wife, Eunice, his in-laws, Perry and Virginia Edwards, and a frequent store customer, a man named Charlie Mays. The state is going to allege at trial that Tommy lured his wife to the store, killed her, then lured her her parents to the store, his in-laws, killed them, then convinces Charlie Mays to go to the store where he kills him and stuffs some money into Charlie's pockets, making it look like a robbery, uh, breaks a window to try to frame Charlie Mays for these murders. Now, there's also allegations by the state that Tommy tried to lure two other men into the store that night. Those men refused and they go to the state after the bodies are discovered and they tell their versions of the story. Now, Tommy's version of the story, now keep in mind, he is convicted and he's been on death row now for 45, 46 years in Florida where they actually execute people. Tommy's version of that night is his wife and his in-laws went to the store after closing hours. He'd given Eunice a key to get in and then her parents were going to look around the store and pick a recliner that they were going to gift to them. Tommy had made pre-arrangements to meet with a man named Edward Williams, who occasionally worked with Tommy doing odd jobs around the furniture store and other odd jobs for the Ziegler family. Tommy goes to the store that night, enters through the back door, and is attacked by somebody and eventually shot. Actually, he's attacked by two people. He can't identify them, but he believes that one of them are Charlie Mays. And Tommy's eventually shot and calls for help. And that's what we have to decide as we go forward with this. Is this like a robbery gone wrong situation, or perhaps even a hit on Tommy. 
that Eunice and her parents walked into and were murdered because they interrupted something? Or was this an elaborate scheme involving multiple people for Tommy to stage a murder to look like it was a robbery gone wrong? And now let's get back into more of the details because I just had to do that because I was listening to this and I was like, people are never going to understand what I'm trying to say here. I just want to say, like, I can't get anybody interested in this case, but it's so interesting to me. Just think that the person that served the most time in America on death row right now, 46 years, there's a really good chance that that guy's innocent and he's never got a second trial. And you hear all these times of people getting tried and tried retrials and all these things. Tommy's never had any success until recently. He's been granting, he's been granted access to evidence to have extensive advanced DNA testing done. And we are all just waiting on the results to find out, is Tommy Ziegler an innocent man condemned to death? So first, a little bit about Tommy. Tommy was an only child and he ran the family business along with his parents, a very successful furniture and carpeting store in Winter Garden, Florida, that was on the outskirts of Orlando. At Tommy's suggestion, the Ziegler family had begun to invest in real estate, buying several apartment buildings. The Ziegler's were expanding their empire. Their net worth was $1 million in 1975. In 2022, that would be well over $5 million. The family's wealth was growing as their business was growing. The family lived simply and did not flaunt their wealth. They were hard workers who worked like they still needed the money. On December 24th, 1975, Tommy's wife, Eunice, and her parents, and a regular customer of the store, Charlie Mays, were found dead inside the Ziegler Furniture Store. Tommy was also on the scene, and he had been shot in the abdomen, but he survived. What looks to me like a robbery gone wrong looks to the police like a staged scene set up by a greedy man who wanted his wife dead. But by all accounts, Tommy and Eunice were happily married. Eunice was a schoolteacher, and she was immensely popular with both her students and co-workers. Tommy met Eunice while she was teaching elementary school, and he was coaching a kid's football team. They had a classic meet-cute when Eunice had kept one of Tommy's star players after school, and Tommy approached her demanding that his player be released for practice, and Eunice just flat-out refused. Less than a year later, they were married on Tommy's 21st birthday. Eunice, she was a really classy Southern lady, but unlike many of her peers, she hated gossip. Eunice played the organ for their church, and Tommy would sit nearby to listen to his wife play. When her father-in-law had a stroke, Eunice took him to his physical therapy appointments and learned all the stretches and exercises so she could help him do his therapy at home with her help. Seriously, that is a terrific daughter-in-law. She was just a very loving and caring person. She would have been an excellent mom. Her mother-in-law referred to her as a calm, quiet, refined lady. Tommy would say of Eunice, she never met anyone who didn't like her. According to Tommy, Eunice believed there was good in everybody. They were married for eight years and were trying to have a baby. And Eunice had met with a fertility specialist to get things jump-started. And I can only imagine what treatment from a fertility specialist in the 1970s was like. I'm going to guess that it was a lot of legs in the air, ladies. But I do know that Eunice kept a log of their sexual activity. And it seemed that the pair had pretty regular romantic relations, which I am only noting now because I think that's very intrusive. I'm only noting it now because later there will be accusations that Tommy is a homosexual, which I just think are completely unfounded. He loved his wife, and they were trying to have children, and if it didn't happen the old-fashioned way, they had discussed adoption. They just really wanted to expand their little loving family. Together, Tommy and Eunice raised Persian cats. They converted one of their stalls of their garage into a kennel for the cats, but the cats also had roamed the house freely and loved to listen to Eunice play the piano. You know how cats love musical vibrations. I guess all animals do, but I just think that's so cute. She played the piano for them. And even though it was the 1970s, they would put the TV on when they left their cats home alone. And I say, even though it's the 1970s, because I think that's more of like a 80s, 90s thing. And in the 1970s, TVs had tubes and leaving a TV on for a long time period like that would be really hard on the tubes. So I'm just saying that just shows how much these two doted on those cats. And um, just like a lot of couples who have are having a hard time having children, I think they really did focus on their pets. And Tommy takes a lot of flack for liking cats. And it seems like some men think that this is an indicator of homosexuality, which I disagree with. And I think it's just silly. Does the reverse hold true? I personally prefer dogs to cats. Does that mean that I should prefer women to men? It's just stereotyping by simple-minded people that perhaps just, you know, never had a cat. But um, back to the crime scene. When Eunice was found dead in the furniture store, she was not alone. Inside the store were the bodies of Eunice's parents, Perry and Virginia Edwards. 
Perry was 72 years old and a retired minister, and Virginia was 52 years old, and like her daughter, she was a school teacher. Perry and Virginia had been visiting Tommy and Eunice over the Christmas holidays, and they all seemed to really get along. Virginia's teaching assistant commented that Virginia was really looking forward to spending Christmas with her daughter. Perry and Virginia had also spent time with Eunice and Tommy over Thanksgiving as well. And Perry and Virginia also had a son, Perry Jr., who was also married, and he had children. And I get the feeling that the parents preferred the company of their daughter and son-in-law to that of their son and daughter-in-law. And I, I'm just thinking this because they chose to spend the past two holidays with the Ziegler's, even though Perry Jr. had kids. And I think that says something. In my mind, most grandparents would spend the holidays, especially Christmas, with the part of the family that had grandkids. But Perry and Virginia went to see their daughter instead. The final victim, Charlie Mays, may not have been a victim in the traditional sense, but we will get to that later. Charlie was the only victim that was not related to Tommy, and the only victim that was black. Charlie was a longtime customer of the store that had been in the store just that morning to purchase linoleum. Charlie was a family man, happily married with four sons. Charlie and his wife led a fruit picking crew that worked in the orange groves. He was really heavily into softball and he led a team in the area. And the local police chief of the town, Robert Thompson from Oakland, thought that they were a nice family. The Mays kids never got in trouble and were never seeing Rome in the streets at night. A local church wanted to give out a gift basket and some cash to a deserving and in-need family for the Christmas holiday. And Chief Thompson had picked the Mays family. It appears that Chief Thompson thought highly of the Mays family. He noted that Charlie Mays didn't drink, smoke, or cuss. But Robert Thompson seemed to ignore Charlie's faults which included gambling issues. Charlie had a recent arrest and conviction related to gambling. Chief Thompson would be one of the first officers to respond to Tommy's call for help on the night of the murders. Oh wait, back to Charlie's gambling arrest? Charlie had gambled away the paychecks for his fruit picking crew and he had nothing to pay them with. Want to guess who loaned Charlie the money so he could pay his crew? Yeah, it was Tommy Ziegler. Charlie seems like a man with money troubles and Tommy seems like a guy that's always willing to help. Now to the idea that Charlie Mays may not be an entirely innocent victim. The state's theory of the murders is that Tommy first killed his wife, then his in-laws at the store. Then Tommy had prearranged that Charlie would show up to pick up a TV. And at that point, Tommy murders Charlie to make it look like Eunice and her parents interrupted Charlie robbing the store. Tommy, of course, denies murdering anyone. And the defense theorizes that the crime scene is just what it looks like, an interrupted robbery that turned into a murder. Okay, now let's talk about the man who was convicted of these four murders, Tommy Ziegler. He was a leader in the community. He had connections to both local politicians, law enforcement, and successful businessmen. Tommy was what we would call a pillar of the community. Tommy had a really concrete sense of what was right and what was wrong. And I just don't think Tommy ever saw shades of gray. To him, there was right and wrong and really not much in between. When a family that resided in the apartment building he owned, they couldn't pay their gas bill. Tommy paid it for them. Some elderly tenants needed a little help, so Tommy bought their groceries. When there was an opportunity to do a kindness, Tommy took it. When Tommy saw an injustice, he did something about it, unlike most people who just look away. Sadly, Tommy's loyalty and sense of fairness would make him enemies. Enemies that would contribute greatly to his conviction for the murder of four people. Tommy helped Andrew James, a local black bar owner who was accused of selling marijuana to an undercover agent from the liquor store board. If substantiated, these accusations would have caused James to lose his liquor license. Mr. James was the only black man in the area to solely own a liquor license. These licenses are incredibly valuable and a requirement to serve liquor in a bar or restaurant. And I'm from Pennsylvania and Florida seems to have a similar like liquor licensing system. There are a limited number of liquor licenses and they have to be granted by the state, and new ones aren't being issued. The only way to get a liquor license is to buy one from an already established business that has a license, or if a business loses its liquor license for violating a rule or law, such as serving alcohol to minors, or in Mr. James' case, selling drugs to an undercover agent out of the bar. Then the state can revoke that license and resell it. The James family had held this liquor license for decades, but with Orlando expanding with recent opening of Disney World, the population was increasing, as was demand for these liquor licenses. Tommy thought James was being railroaded because James had refused to sell his liquor license to a group of white guys that were involved in a loan shark ring that Tommy had tried to bust up. Tommy was a character witness for James at his trial and helped with his defense. 
James was able to keep his liquor license and he remained loyal to Tommy throughout his life, even testifying for Tommy at his trial. Even after Andrew James died, his wife testified as a character witness on Tommy's behalf at a resentencing hearing. It appears that the James family was very loyal to Tommy, even when their loyalty would have made them very unpopular in their own community, the black community. And this speaks to, first, the character of the James family. I mean, a lot of people won't stand up for other people, even if they are a friend, and even if they've helped them before when it's uncomfortable for them. But the James family is not like this. And I'm impressed by that. But it also speaks to how truly important Tommy's help to Andrew James was. That even years later, James and his family stood by Tommy. On the day of the murders, it was Christmas Eve, and Eunice didn't work that day. Eunice had planned to go to the furniture store with her parents to pick out a recliner that would be her parents' Christmas gift from her and Tommy. That afternoon was the plan. They'd stop it and pick out the chair. But because of one of her cats was unwell, Eunice changed her plans last minute and instead took that cat to the vet. Because of this unexpected cat illness and the trip to the vet, Eunice decided to stop in the store later after it closed before she and her parents went to an evening church service that Tommy's mother would also attend. And that's the beauty of being married to the store owner. You know, you can go there after hours. But just keep in mind, because this is really important, remember that if a cat hadn't been sick and if Eunice hadn't chose to take that cat to the vet, her parents and her would never been in the store that night. So think of that. While the prosecution in the state claims this is going to be a murder that Tommy planned months in advance, Eunice and her parents being in that store hinges completely on the fact that they were not able to go to that store earlier in the day because of an emergency vet appointment. After the visit to the vet, Eunice went home, spent some time with her mother, and they baked a cake together. They had plans for later in that evening, you know, go pick out the chair, go to church services. And after the church services, Tommy and Eunice had plans to attend an annual holiday party held by a close friend. The party's host was also Tommy Eunice's lawyer. And he also was oddly enough a local judge, which is kind of weird to have a local judge who's also a practicing lawyer. But who knows? They do that here. Local law enforcement officers were always invited to this party. That seems like it was sort of a end of the year, thanks for your service kind of shindig for local lawmen. Tommy had spent Christmas Eve working in the furniture store, much like any other day, along with his mother and full-time store employee, Curtis Dunaway. Tommy did have plans to make some evening deliveries of some holiday gifts, and he asked Edward Williams, a black man who occasionally worked for the Ziegler store, um, and he worked occasionally as a handyman for their apartment, servicing their apartment buildings. He had asked him to meet him at Tommy's house at 7 to help him with these last-minute Christmas drop-offs. Tommy told his employee, Curtis Dunaway, that he planned on returning to the store that night and was going to make these last-minute holiday deliveries with Edward Williams to assist him. Curtis Dunaway offered to help. He said he could do it, but Tommy knew that Curtis Dunaway had family plans. There was going to be some type of event at Curtis Dunaway's home that night. Family was coming in, and he didn't want him to miss that. So he said, no, don't bother. But it's really important to note that Curtis Dunaway knew that Tommy planned to meet with Edward Williams that night. If Tommy had planned to set up Williams to look like a robber and a murderer... Would Tommy have told Curtis Dunway that his plan was to meet Edward Williams that night? No, the meeting would have been in secret. The Mays family, remember Charlie Mays is the other murdered victim in the store that night, the only one that's not related to Tommy. They were regular customers of the Ziegler Furniture Store. And on the morning of Christmas Eve, the husband and wife, Charlie and Maddie, actually went to the Ziegler's and purchased some new linoleum. The linoleum that they picked out would have to be cut and picked up later, but they put down a deposit and the rest was put on their tab. And this is kind of interesting to note. The Ziegler's store was one of the only white-owned stores that allowed black people to purchase things on credit. And it was the first store to do that in the Winter Garden area. The Mays family had a credit account in the store dating back to 1960. In 1960, the Ziegler's opened up credit to black people in their community when no one else did. I want people to think about that because the prosecution and the police try to paint Tommy Ziegler as a racist when the facts don't support that assertion. Sure, you could say that he was racist, but he's still willing to take black people's money. Okay, maybe. But the other businesses in that town that were owned by white people didn't offer black people credit because they didn't trust black people. They thought of black people as less. The Ziegler's weren't like that. And this was a furniture store. This would be expensive items that were being placed on tab. This is a big deal. I just want to say that I'm only mentioning race to some of these people involved in this case because the events take place in 1975 in Florida, the Deep South, in a city that had a mayor who was in a no member of the Ku Klux Klan into the 70s. 
1970s. It's important to remember that this was not the Florida that we know of today. Tommy and all members of his family were white, and while Charlie Mays and Edward Williams are black. And this is going to be important when it comes time for the trial. And it's going to be important when you see the community's response to these murders. In everything that I've read about this case, which is a lot, I have found no evidence that Tommy Ziegler was racist. And that's not to say that he didn't move within a society where wealthy business owners were referred to as Mr. Tommy. But he didn't create that society. He didn't ask people to call him that. And the mere fact that he let it happen doesn't mean that he himself was racist, as much as that his behavior was a product of the times and the location, the Deep South. Times have thankfully changed and will keep changing, but it's important that we don't place our own views of what's appropriate today on behavior from decades ago. Failure to recognize where we all once were negates the beauty of where we are today, and I think it stunts our ability to move forward together as a people. Along with the Mays family that day at the furniture store was a 16-year-old fruit picker that worked with them, Brian Ned. Why they brought this teenager along with them to pick out linoleum is a question that I don't have the answer to. But it's a good question. I mean, their kids aren't with them. Why is this dude there? It seems weird. I don't hang out with random 16-year-old boys. Sure, he worked with them as a fruit picker and it was picking season, but I would think he would have some place he'd rather be. It was Christmas Eve. And it is picking out linoleum. I mean, what teenage boy wants to do that anytime? In their deposition, Maddie and Brian state that after the linoleum was picked out, Tommy took Charlie to a storage room. And Tommy showed Charlie a console TV that the store was selling on consignment for $128. Brian claimed that he overheard the conversation. Maddie did not claim to hear the conversation, but she testified that later at home, Charlie told her that the TV would be a surprise gift for the family. I'm going to say that's a pretty big last minute gift. That would be $675 today. Be purchased last minute on a whim on Christmas Eve. Also, can you buy things that are on consignment on store credit? That seems questionable because the store doesn't own it. That's owned by whoever put it up for consignment. And if someone doesn't pay for it, the person that put it up for consignment never gets their money. It, to me, it seems like if it's consignment, it's cash and carry. According to Brian, Maddie and Charlie were supposed to pick up the TV at 7.30 after the store closed. Seems super weird. The maze had to put down a larger deposit than normal on the linoleum as their account was already past due. This also makes me wonder about that TV there. They're already past due. Why would Charlie agree to make such a large purchase when he wasn't really up to date on his bills already? The prosecution is going to argue that the TV was a ruse constructed by Tommy to get Charlie to the store so he could kill Charlie and frame him for the murder of his wife and in-laws. Tommy's whole plan would have been blown if Charlie had simply said no to the TV, which was a real possibility. Charlie Mays wasn't able to keep pay his tab on time. Why would he agree to purchase such an expensive TV and add to the tab that he already was unable to pay? Why would Tommy let everything hinge on whether Charlie said yes to buying the TV? He easily could have said no. Would have made much more sense for Tommy to have told him to come by at 7.30 to get the linoleum. That would have made sense. But it doesn't make sense that Tommy told him to pick up a TV after hours. Why doesn't it make sense? Because I don't think Tommy ever tried to sell Charlie a TV. That was just a construct to make Charlie look innocent. How else could the Mays family sue the Ziegler family for failing to protect the safety of a customer in their store after Charlie died? Maddie Mays did sue the Ziegler's, which she would not have been able to do so as easily if her husband wasn't an innocent victim that night. Tommy wrote out a sales contract and took a $50 deposit for the linoleum. No sales contract was made for the TV, and no deposit was paid for the TV. Now, Charlie will say that he paid a deposit for the TV, but it's noted nowhere on the sales contract or receipt. There is no actual evidence that Tommy sold Charlie Mays a TV that day, other than the testimony of Charlie's wife and his family friend. And his wife sued the Ziegler family, so she has some motive to make sure Charlie is a victim. Also, she never claims, Maddie never claims that she heard Tommy make the agreement to sell the TV to Charlie. So I wonder if maybe Charlie went home and he did tell Maddie that he had plans to return to the store that night to pick up a TV he was buying. But he was lying to Maddie and Maddie believed him. And when she says he was in the store that night, she's basing it off her belief, you know, that she trusted what her husband was saying was the truth, which maybe it wasn't. Maybe he had planned to go to the store that night to rob it of all available cash and, you know, snatch a TV on the way out. The Mays family do come back to the Ziegler store on December 24th after they had done a little bit more shopping and they pick up the three rolls of linoleum and they bring it home in their blue van. And Brian Ned says that Tommy mentions picking up the TV again to Charlie. And the time that Brian Ned says 
that Tommy said to pick it up. It's very, very important to remember the times on this. And I'm going to keep emphasizing it later. The time in the trial, they keep saying that the agreed upon time was 7.30. But Brian Ned testifies that the agreed upon time is between 7 and 7.30 that night. That's important to remember that Brian Ned said the agreed upon time to pick up the TV was between 7 and 7.30. This is important because the murders of Eunice and her parents occur at 7.25. It doesn't make sense for Tommy to Charlie to arrive while Tommy is killing his family. According to the state's timeline, Tommy is supposed to be meeting Charlie at the furniture store at the same time he arranged to meet Edward Williams at his home. Okay, so when they get home, the Mays family installs their new flooring. It is at this time that Maddie claims that Charlie tells her about the TV. She says that Charlie told her that the down payment that they made that day was for both the flooring and the TV. Keep in mind that the sales receipt did not mention the TV. There is no record of this sale of a TV, just the statement of Maddie Mays and Brian Ned. If that down payment was really for both the flooring and a TV, I just have to think it would be on that receipt. Wouldn't Charlie Mays have wanted documentation that he paid a deposit on that TV? Especially as he appears he had trouble paying his bills on time. But really, I know it's a small thing, but when all you have to really rely on is the word of interested parties, and there's no physical proof to back up their claim, I really question these people. If I put down a deposit on something, I get an itemized receipt. That's how business works. Keep in mind, I could be wrong, nothing's certain about this case, but I know when I walk away from putting down a deposit, my receipt, my sales contract, says what I put the deposit down on. Okay, now, so Curtis Dunway, he was actually a regular full-time employee of the store, and he worked that night at Christmas Eve, and he had worked at the store for four years. He rarely socialized with Tommy outside of work, but he had a good working friendship with the family. Curtis Dunway notes when he wanted something at the store, they either gave it to him for free or it cost. He enjoyed working there, and he had a good relationship with everybody. It's, I'm just saying, making the point, they weren't like buddy-buddy outside of the store, but they had a good employee-employer relationship. Curtis drove a three-year-old Oldsmobile 98 that had begun making some suspicious noises. And Curtis had plans to drive to Orlando on Christmas Day, and he wouldn't be able to get his car to the garage until the 26th, the day after Christmas. Well, Tommy volunteers that Curtis could borrow Tommy's almost brand new 1975 Oldsmobile Toronado that Eunice typically drove. They're going to exchange cars. Tommy will have access to Curtis's Oldsmobile 98 and still have his truck. It's important to note that Tommy's car is white, well, Curtis's car is a two-tone with beige roof and a brown body. One car is white and the other is brown. Remember this later when I describe the car that Tommy was driving that night because he is driving Curtis's brown, two-tone brown car, something that most people wouldn't have known about. Curtis agreed to Tommy's offer to trade cars. And to me, it's like, geez, uh, Tommy seems like a nice guy. I can think of co-workers in my past that would have traded cars with me, but I can think of only one boss in my past that would ever do that. That's really nice. This goes to my point that Tommy's a nice guy. I know, I, I hate to see kindness is used against him because later at trial, they're going to say he's trying to use a car that, that people won't notice him in. No, he's using a car that's having problems, you know? It it just doesn't make sense. And I, I hate to see people's kindnesses thrown back up in their faces. Okay, so at the store, a minimum of five guns were kept in the furniture store. Also, while out on deliveries and collections, Tommy drove a truck and he had a handgun and he kept it in a customized desktop on the dashboard. It was kind of hidden away behind some rags and stuff, so you couldn't easily see the gun. And it's in this, like, dashboard desktop. And uh, the truck door was damaged, the lock on the passenger side, and wouldn't lock. So anyone could have access to the gun that was stored there through that side door. And there had been a series of robberies of businesses where clerks were shot in the area. So I don't think it's weird that there were that many guns in the store in different locations. I'm going to talk about Edward Williams a little bit now. He was a black man who worked as an as-needed handyman for the Zieglers. Uh, Williams did repairs for the apartment complexes that the Zieglers owned. And when the Zieglers had rebuilt their furniture store in this location, he had helped with that. And Edward Williams had just moved into a new apartment that day, an apartment for which Tommy had loaned Williams $80 to make a security deposit. Tommy even called the electric company personally so Williams could have his power in his new apartment turned on because Edward Williams had a disputed unpaid bill. So Tommy gives him money for the security deposit, knows he can't have his electric turned on, so he makes a phone call for him. That sounds like a pretty non-racist, pretty nice guy, and that's the feeling that I get about Tommy. Now keep in mind, the whole time Tommy is lending Edward Williams money and helping him to get his electricity turned on, According to the state, Tommy is planning on killing this guy 
and framing him for murder in just a few days. Now, is Tommy an evil mastermind? Or is he just a guy that's always willing to help a friend? Yes, he was a successful businessman. He commanded the respect of others. But I get the sense that Tommy was a pretty black and white guy in terms of what was right and wrong. I think that Tommy thought it was wrong to judge people on race. So he just didn't do that. And he had a lot of experiences with black people because he had done collections for his family store and worked in the store where there were a lot of black customers. And I think a lot of racism is born from people not being familiar with people different than them, people of different colors. And Tommy was familiar with black people. Like he worked with them, you know, had them as employees. He dealt with them as customers. And I think that he didn't have any fear of black people. And I think, I mean, it shows in his movements in the black community, but also I just think it shows of how he respected black people. And I just think, I think back then a lot of people just didn't know each other. And that's where the root of a lot of the racism was. I mean, a lot of it was from hate, but I also think a lot of it was just fear based on unfamiliarity. You know, but that's just me thinking. I think Tommy seems to evaluate people on an individual basis, but his kindness to others would not always be returned. When Tommy needed people to stand up for him, there were very few people willing to do so. Tommy stood up for people when they needed him to his own detriment, but people couldn't do the same for him. And as soon as there were allegations that Tommy had killed a black man, the black community turned against him. And that sounds a little bit cruel to me. He might not exactly treat these guys that pitch around the store as peers, but really, what boss owner does? Tommy seems very willing to help people out regardless of race. Williams would testify that Tommy had asked Williams to help him with some late night deliveries. According to Williams, Tommy asked Williams to meet Tommy at Tommy's house at 730 that night. This is the exact same time that the maze witnesses claim that Tommy told Charlie to meet him at the store. It appears that according to the state, uh, Tommy has double booked himself. The prosecution's theory is that Tommy had planned to murder his wife and in-laws in the furniture store that night and that Tommy planned to make the murders look like a burglary gone wrong by framing Edward Williams and Charlie Mays for the murder of his family. I don't buy this theory at all. Tommy had by all accounts a great marriage. They were trying for children. They raised fancy cats together. But even if Tommy wanted Eunice dead, and that's a big if, there is solid evidence to support the argument that they were super in love. And there's no evidence to support the argument that he wanted her dead besides a life insurance policy on Eunice. But Tommy was very wealthy and he had no financial troubles at all. Tommy has absolutely no motive to kill his in-laws. Their murder did nothing to benefit Tommy in any way. And I will note, there is a large insurance policy on Eunice and people will say that is the reason why Tommy wanted her dead. But in every case I've ever heard of where someone is murdered for insurance proceeds, the person that planned the murder is in desperate financial straits. Tommy was not. I have never heard of a person murdered for insurance proceeds that nobody needed. I mean, he's, according to the, the state, he's murdering a woman that he loves for money that he doesn't need. And he's doing it inside a store that is his main source of income. And I mean, once a huge murder takes place inside the store, that damages business. So he's willing to damage business at his furniture store, which is main source of income, to get a short-term profit from insurance proceeds? It's just not logical. That furniture store was going to be the source of generational wealth. I, Tommy's too smart to damage something like that. And if he has plans to murder these men and frame them for murdering his family in the store, why not have both Charlie Mays and Edward Mays meet him at the store and just stagger the victim's arrival times? Why drive all over town to meet these people? Why have Charlie Mays meet you at the store at supposedly 7.30 and have Edward Williams meet you at 7.30 at your house? Just have them both meet you at the store. But not at the same time, perhaps. Why would Tommy have Williams meet him at his house at 7.30 have Mays meet him at the store at 7.32? For a crime that the state claims was planned down to every detail every minute it seems like every minute was planned according to the state but that's a major lapse of judgment now it's important to note that tommy claims that williams was actually supposed to meet him at seven and that williams was late the state's theory is that shortly before 7 30 around 7 24 tommy murdered first eunice and then his in-laws when they arrived a few minutes after eunice's murder so according to the state's theory tommy had arranged for charlie mays to come to the store only minutes after he murdered three people. What would have happened if Charlie had arrived early? And keep in mind that Brian Ned testifies between 7 and 7.30 that Charlie was told to arrive. What would have happened if Charlie was already in the store, had already arrived before the murders took place? Or even while the murders took place? Would Tommy William have wanted Mays, a young, 
fit man that posed a real challenge to Tommy. I don't think that's, I can't believe that he would have wanted the murders interrupted or another person there before the murders had occurred. For his part, William said that he generally did whatever Tommy asked of him to do because Tommy always helped Williams. When he asked for a favor, you just got to see how Tommy's kindness is returned. It's heartbreaking. Williams agrees to meet Tommy at Tommy's house that night. When Williams arrived, he sees only Tommy's pickup truck in the driveway. Um, the garage door is up and Williams goes into the garage and up to the inside garage door to the house and sees a note tucked into the door to the house. The note read, Edward, I'll be right back. Sign Z. Williams checked the time when he found the note. It was 728. And this will be the only time that Williams gives in his timeline of the night. Everything else is like estimates. Williams pulled his truck up behind Tommy's truck in the driveway and waited. Tommy would explain that he ran to the liquor store to buy some brandy for the party that night, but turned around before he getting to the liquor store because he decided that he didn't have enough time to make it to the store and he's just going to be pushing himself further behind. He thought, once I meet Edward Williams at his house, I'll make a, a stop at the liquor store on the way to the furniture store. While he was out making deliveries in the daytime working hours on Christmas Eve, Tommy mentioned to his employee, Curtis, that Tommy was going to return to the store that night to get a grill recliner and potted plant. And Curtis had offered to return with Tommy to help Tommy make these deliveries, but Tommy said that he he didn't want Curtis to interrupt his big family gathering that night and that Tommy would have Edward Williams to help him. So that's a confirmation from another source confirming Tommy's plan to have Edwards help him with deliveries that night. But if Tommy was planning on murdering his family and framing Edwards as a robber, turned murderer why he would he tell curtis that he planned to meet edwards the night of that deliveries that meeting if it had nefarious intentions would be something that tommy kept secret but it's very interesting to me or perhaps telling that tommy made no mention to curtis dunaway of charlie mays coming to pick up a console tv most likely because tommy had no idea that mays was planning on being in the furniture store that night in fact After Chief of Police Richard Thompson delivered the gift basket and money donated from a local church to the Mays family, Tommy and Curtis stopped by the Mays home to deliver a cot that Maddie had ordered earlier. And she had asked about when they picked up the linoleum. Why didn't Tommy drop off the TV then, that afternoon, while he made, while he and Curtis made the delivery of the cot? Curtis would have been actually there to help Tommy and Charlie deliver this heavy TV. I mean, we're talking heavy here. If it had actually been an agreement that Charlie was buying the TV. I think the fact that Tommy and his employee Curtis delivered a cot Christmas Eve afternoon to Charlie Mays house shows that there was no plan ever where Charlie Mays was purchasing a TV. If he was, it would have, why wouldn't Charlie have mentioned it while he was there? Why not? Why didn't you deliver the TV while you were out here? Well, one might say that because Tommy wanted Charlie to come by the store at the night to frame him. But by making a separate delivery that same day to the Mays household, Tommy risked Charlie mentioning the TV and the planned nighttime pickup in front of Curtis, thus blowing apart the whole secrecy of the plan. This is a major risk on Tommy's part that has no benefit to Tommy. Are we supposed to believe that he perfectly, you know, both perfectly planned these murders, but also made potentially colossal blunders? Which is it? Mastermind or dumb luck? Or neither? You can't have him be a a great planner and a genius putting this crime together and also have him being an idiot. There's no reason why he would deliver that cot with Curtis Dunway. Because at any point during that delivery, Maddie could mention the TV, Charlie could mention the TV pickup arrangement for that night. Anybody mentions that in front of Curtis and Tommy's entire plan is done. And what benefit? What does Tommy get by delivering that cot that day? Nothing. It makes no sense. Why, if there actually was an agreement of some sort, just buy a TV. Why wouldn't Tommy have dropped off the TV then that afternoon while he had Curtis there to help him? Just think about it. Why wouldn't Charlie have had Tommy deliver the TV with the cot while Tommy and Curtis were both there to help Charlie? Did you ever try to lift an old console TV? It's not a one-person job. Honestly, I don't even think it's a two-person job. This isn't a TV like today, like the flat screens that we have. And this isn't even a TV like the 90s that were large TVs. These are TVs from the 1970s. It's a console TV. This is a piece of furniture. An awkward, heavy piece of furniture. They're encased in wood. They sit on the floor. You put a lamp on top of them and maybe a flower arrangement. They're huge. 
Are we really to believe that Charlie would agree to buy a heavy TV and agree to go pick up the TV himself and have to carry that TV into his home himself and make arrangements to get that TV into his house when the Zigglers were making a delivery to that house that day anyway? A 1970s console TV would weigh over 200 pounds. Also, it's an awkward 200 pounds. You can't get your arms around it. I don't think Charlie was going to be able to get that into his house alone. I don't even know if Charlie would be able to get that into his house with the help of one other person. If Charlie even mentioned in an offhand manner that they should have delivered the TV with the cot in front of Curtis, then Tommy's plan would be ruined. Curtis would know about the TV and the alleged agreement to have Charlie pick it up that night. Tommy being in the maze house that day makes no sense. It's too damn risky. Instead of delivering the TV, Charlie was on his, was, instead of delivering the TV, Charlie was on his own to get that fictional TV into his home, all 200 pounds of it. And we were supposed to believe that Charlie never questioned this once. Maddie Mays, this is the point where I start to question some things she says. She claims that she heard Tommy mention the TV again to Charlie about picking it up that night. Curtis was along for this delivery. And there is no testimony that he heard this statement from Tommy. At no point did Curtis have any knowledge of an arrangement between Charlie and Tommy where Charlie would go to the Ziegler Furniture Store after hours to pick up a television. The only source for that information is Maddie Mays, Charlie's wife, and Brian Ned, Charlie's employee. And if Tommy was trying to keep this hush-hush for Maddie, you know, it's supposed to be a surprise, he thought, for the family. That's the story the state tells. Why would Tommy mention the TV in front of her? You know, it's supposed to be a surprise. But this is a very self-serving statement by Maddie. It paints her husband as an innocent victim, not the burglar or worse, maybe a hitman that he very well may have been. Charlie's memory is left intact as long as you believe the lie that he was there to pick up a TV. And as long as Charlie is a customer in the furniture store, Maddie can sue the Zieglers over her husband's death. He was just an innocent customer murdered in a store. It's time to collect a payday. On Christmas Eve, Bueller Ziegler closed the store a little after 6 p.m. along with her son Tommy and their employee Curtis Dunaway, and she had planned to attend the same 7.30 church service as Eunice and her parents. After the church service, Eunice would go with Tommy to the party hosted by the judge. While closing the day's cash receipts, then the cash receipts were totaled and put into a safe. Four overhead lights were typically kept on in the store overnight. They illuminated four showcases. Curtis said that Tommy told him to turn out these lights. They, there were other lights that remained on in the store, including lamps and a large illuminated wreath. I think the turning off of the showcase lights is just a product of Tommy's frugality. After the murders, people came out of the woodwork to claim that Tommy, Tommy limited Eunice's use of the air conditioner in the summer. You know, he's very cheap and really restricted what how much spending she could do. I mean, I do think this is an exaggeration. He did just buy his wife a brand new car and he'd put it in a in-ground swimming pool in the backyard. So I think Tommy does pinch a penny, but I think a lot of people are just trying to, they don't have anything bad to say about him. So you pick the smallest thing in the world and try to magnify that until he's some type of miser. But as a fellow cheapo, I wonder if Tommy wanted the lights out because no one would be at the store on Christmas day and the lights don't need to be on in the daytime. So theoretically, the lights would be on for an entire day unnecessarily. I mean, you only need the, the lights on when it's dark in the evening time and and when people drive by. You don't need it on throughout the day. I mean, people can see right into the store. If it was Tommy's goal to make the store dark so he could attack people there, then he could have just turned the power source off outside, which was something that was done later that night. And if Tommy planned on turning off the power source, why bother to tell Curtis to turn out the overhead lights? They would be out anyway when the power was cut. It wouldn't do anything out, I wouldn't do anything out of the norm if I was planning on crime. And the turning off of the showcase lights was not the norm. Basically, what I'm saying is, if Tommy wanted those lights out because he planned to murder his family in the showroom that night, and he wanted the storeroom to be dark, why raise any suspicions by asking Curtis to turn out the lights? Tommy could have hung back and left a minute later than the others and turned off the lights himself. That way, no one would ever realize that the lights hadn't been left on. With all the confusion of the crime scene, with the power switched out off outside, lots of light switches were flicked on when the officers first entered the store, you know, in an early attempt to get some light in there. And I think the showroom lights being switched off could have been easily overlooked 
But most importantly, if Tommy wanted, had planned to turn off the power at the box that night, did it really matter if those four showroom lights were on? The power was going to be cut anyway. To put it simply, if Tommy wanted those showcase lights out, he could have turned them off himself on his way out. And in the initial confusion of the crime scene, it's very likely that no one would have ever realized that those lights had been turned off. And beyond that, the basic premise that Tommy wanted those lights out so he could commit a murder in the store makes even less sense if this was all planned out to the minute detail like the state claims, because then he would know he was going to be cutting the electricity from the outside. So would it matter if the lights were on or not? To me, this just looks like a frugal Frank trying to save a few pennies. If it sounds like I'm making a big deal out of nothing, it's because I am. Because this Tommy wanted the lights out of the showcase on the showcase windows business is some of the major evidence against Tommy. I hate to see someone executed because they are penny pinchers. No one is as cheap as me. I mean, I could be next. I'm the only person in my family that turns the light at, lights out when we leave the house. This isn't some part of grand murderous plot I have. It's how I was raised to save electricity. It's simple. It's not devious. Because Tommy and Curtis were trading cars that night, after they closed up the store, Curtis drove to Tommy's house to pick up Tommy's car and leave his own car there at the Ziegler house. Tommy had driven his truck to work that day and the car was home with Eunice because it's her car, it's what she normally drove. Once Curtis and Tommy arrive at Tommy's house, Tommy helped Curtis transfer some holiday items from Curtis's car into his own car. Then Tommy invited Curtis inside for a piece of freshly baked cake. After a slice of cake and a short visit, Curtis leaves the Ziegler's in Tommy's car a little bit before seven. It's important to note that Curtis was in the house with Tommy, Eunice, and her parents, and he said everyone was getting along. There was no tension or discord. It was a happy family evening. Also, I want to note that Curtis really thought highly of Eunice. He referred to Eunice as the salt of the earth, which I just love. And um, this is only you know 30 minutes before Eunice and her parents would be murdered. And all was well at the house according to a neutral bystander. Okay, so the party that the Ziegler's plan to attend that night at the local judge's house is to start at seven. And Eunice had met, made plans with Rita Fick. She's Ficky, I think. Actually, I'm sorry, I think it's pronounced Ficky. She's the wife of the Winter Gardens police chief. Um, and the police chief of Winter Gardens is really one of Tommy's best friends. And Eunice, you know, gets along very well with Rita as well. But anyway, the two wives, they plan to meet up and arrive at the party together as the Zieglers were the only people that the Fickies knew very well that would be at the party. And I think they felt just a little bit uncomfortable going on their own. Okay, so Elsa that night, remember that Tommy has the plans to meet Edward Williams to make those deliveries. So Edward Williams plans to meet Tommy at Tommy's house, but Williams is also experiencing car troubles. I'm telling you what, Winter Garden, Oakland, Florida, 1970s, these people got car troubles. His Camaro was in a garage for repairs. Okay, this guy cannot has a late overdue electricity bill that he, so electricity can't be turned on, doesn't have enough for a down payment on his apartment, or his deposit on his apartment, but this man's got a Camaro. Priorities. Okay, so his Camaro was at a garage for repairs, so maybe the Camaro's not in great shape. Well, his truck is having trouble starting when it is warm, and it was described by some as a carburetor issue. Seriously, everybody in this area's got some carburetor problems. Oh, wait, maybe not everybody. Maybe it's just him. Maybe it's just Edward Williams. I'm sorry. I have had those in my life, but never again because carburetors are gone. Okay. So anyway, I just love when things are eliminated from cars because you're like, that's one less problem to have. That's one more thing, less thing that could explode or go. Okay. So Williams stopped in his new apartment and showered and changed after he had done some you know, working, but out in the day. So he's showering and changing to get ready to go meet Tommy. And according to Williams, he wore a black cardigan and green pants, along with brand new, brand new dress boots. Yeah, he wore brand new dress boots to go make deliveries with Tommy. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so now there's some people in the evening that hear some witnesses. Sounds like fireworks to them, firecrackers. But later, after we know what happens at the furniture store with four people, Five people shot, actually. We now know those are most likely gunshots. So at 7.20, Barbara Tinsley, 
She claimed, and she's saying approximately 7.20, she claimed that she heard three or four loud noises, like a firecracker. She knew the precise time because she was waiting on her brother, who was supposed to arrive at 7, and he was 20 minutes late. So she's watching the clock. The explosion sounds were at 7.20, according to Barbara, who was, you know, she's on that clock. Her brother's late. I've been there. Like, when are you getting here, dude? You're supposed to be here at 7. So she hears three, four loud firecracker noises, 7.20. Approximately 15 to 20 minutes later, she heard seven, six or seven more explosions from the same direction, the east. The Ziegler Furniture Store was the east of Barbara's location. I I think she was at her parents' house waiting for her brother. Okay. Also in this time frame, driving by the Ziegler store at 720 is Linda and Kenneth Roach. They heard what they described as a loud pop. Linda thought perhaps they had blown a tire. That's how loud the noise is. Do you know how loud it is when you blow a tire? I do. After that first pop, they heard a string of about 10 explosions that Kenneth likened to a string of fireworks. And according to these two, we're going to call them ear witnesses because they heard sounds. The first pops are at 7.20 and then these pops are followed by a longer string of pops at 7.30 to 7.35. Curtis left Tommy's house shortly before 7 and Tommy was home at that time. At 7.20, it sounds like shots are being fired at the furniture store. The police would go on to argue that Tommy lured Eunice and her in-laws to the store with the promise of a gifted recliner. And once there, Tommy shot and killed all three of these family members. If what the police allege is true, in little over 20 minutes after Curtis left, the Zigglers left the Ziggler home, Tommy got Eunice and his in-laws to the store and shot them. Now, keep in mind that most of the places we reference are only about one mile from the heart of town. The greatest dis- distance is between the furniture store and the Ziegler's house, which is a five to ten minute drive, depending on traffic. So Eunice and her parents could be at the furniture store by 720. Um, at seven, Eunice says bye to Curtis, then freshens up, drives the five to ten minutes to the store where Eunice and her parents are ambushed. Okay, so the wives of Tommy and the police chief, Eunice and Rita, had arranged that the couples would drive together to the party that night. And I think that it was agreed that the Zieglers would meet the Fickies at the Fickies' house because according to Ficky, um, the police chief, he wasn't surprised when the Zieglers were late as it seemed they were often late to social events. So I never found it explained exactly like this, but this is what it sounds like to me, that the Zieglers were supposed to show up at the Fickies to drive to the party together. And the party was to start at 7. But I think it must have been agreed that they were planning to meet a little bit later because the church services that Eunice was planning to attend with her parents and her mother-in-law were at 7.30. So when the Zieglers don't show up, then the Fickies go looking for the Zieglers and arrive at the Zieglers' house at sometime shortly after 8, like maybe 8.05. They know the time because they had been watching TV and the show ended and a show was coming on that uh, Don Ficky didn't like. So that's when they left to go check on the Zieglers. And, you know, shows usually end on the hour. So that's how they figured that out. And these people live close together. Because all the locations that we talk about here are really only a mile from the heart of town. So the Fickies drive past the house where the party's being held. And that's the, the Van Deventers, Van Deventers family house. And they drive past there three times between 8 and 8.45. And they check to see if the Zieglers are at the party three times. And then they three times they drive to the Ziegler's house as well. I really don't think the Fickies wanted to go to this party without the Zieglers. They even drove to the furniture by the furniture store where Rita Ficky noted the green sedan parked out in the front of the lot alone. That would be Eunice's parents' car. The store was dark. Ficky saw two police cars parked at the KFC um, which is across the street from the furniture store. One was from Winter Garden, the other from the neighboring area of Oakland. At 8.45, the Fickies gave up on trying to find the Zieglers, and they went to the party on their own. You know, like some grown-ass adults. I find it a little weird that the chief of police can't walk into a party filled with acquaintances from his own town without a buddy by his side. It's not a junior high saw cop. Just get your ass in there. If it's terrible, leave early. Okay, so those two police cars that um, Chief Vicky saw at the KFC, the Oakland car was driven by Chief Robert Thompson, the guy that thought Charlie Mays was so terrific, and the Winter Garden police car was driven by an officer named um, Jimmy Yawn. Thompson had given the other officers in his department the night off, and Thompson himself would be attending the same party that Tommy was supposed to attend that night. Because of Thompson's actions, you know, giving the night off to all of his other officers, and um, you know, giving them the holiday night off. There were no Oakland police officers other than himself on duty that night. And he seems to be spending a lot of his time 
in Winter Garden and not in Oakland. So I'm saying effectively because of Chief Robert Thompson's actions, there's no police officers on duty in Oakland that night. Because he might be on duty, but he's not in Oakland. But anyway, at 8.50, Thompson drove by the furniture store and noted, noticed the green sedan with Georgia plates. That's Eunice's parents' car. Then Thomas drove back to Oakland and then went to the Van Deventer party. When Thompson got to the doorstep, Don Ficky was running out of the house in a hurry. Now, I just want to make a point here. Why was Robert Thompson, the chief of police in Oakland, in a police cruiser outside of his jurisdiction in Winter Garden on Christmas Eve? He mentions checking in and out of service several times, but wasn't he really out of service the whole time he was in Winter Garden? I mean, he's the chief of police in Oakland. He wasn't in in Oakland. He was out of his jurisdiction, so he's out of service, right? But why? He had given all of his officers the night off. No other officers were on duty. What the hell was he doing outside of Oakland? Thompson had 15 years of experience between U.S. Border Patrol and Florida Highway Patrol, and then he had been the head of security for Florida's governor. What the hell was Robert Thompson doing as chief of police in Oakland, a department that consisted of only two other officers? During Thompson's during Tommy's trial, Thompson would resign from the force, and he he would go on reportedly to run arms in Central America, where he was re- arrested in the mid 1980s. He just doesn't sound like a guy you would expect to be a small town police chief. Just I mean, really, I can't get past it. What the hell was this guy doing in Oakland, Florida, running a three man police force? He'd been in charge of the head of the governor's security, border patrol, Florida Highway Patrol. And then he does this? But so briefly, because he resigned during the trial, with the trial takes place within six months of the murders, so he wasn't police chief long. And then years later, he's running guns down in Central America. I just can't place what this guy is doing in Oakland, Florida. But anyway, that just might be me wondering about things that I don't need to wonder about. Okay, so... Chief Thompson arrives at the Van Deventer party and sees Chief Don Ficky running out of the party. Why was Chief Ficky in such a hurry? Well, Tommy Ziegler had just phoned the Van Deventer home and told the judge that he had been shot in the furniture store. Ficky and Thompson drove to the furniture store separately in their police cars with the lights a flashing. On the way, Thompson called the Winter Garden dispatcher to call other units to respond. This call was made at 921. The drive itself was under a minute. Winter Garden officer Jimmy Yawn responded quickly. All officers at the scene at this time were unarmed. Thompson could see Tommy trying to open the front door. Tommy was calling out to Thompson, and Tommy had blood on his face, and heavy amounts of blood were all over Tommy's shirt. Thompson got to the front door as Tommy finally got it unlocked. Thompson flung Tommy over his shoulder and rushed Tommy to the hospital. Thompson saw the bullet wound in Tommy's side. There was a quarter-size entrance wound. The exit wound was on Tommy's back, and it was not actively bleeding. Thompson noted that he did not get any blood on his shirt, or I would not say not any. It was very minimal, minimal type of blood he got on his white police uniform shirt when he carried Tommy over his shoulder to the car. And just minutes later, when a nurse cut off Tommy's shirt in the emergency room, she noted that his shirt was completely dry. Only a few minutes had passed since Tommy first called for help, but his wound was dry and the blood on his shirt was dry. It was 9.23 when Tommy arrived at the hospital and while he was laying on a gurney, Thompson leaned in close to Tommy's face and asked him who shot him. Tommy responded, Charlie Mays. But Chief Thompson was just so sure that Charlie was a good guy. But I'm not so sure about Thompson. And I'm worried that I might be creating my own rabbit hole here. But there is a part of me that wonders if a police officer was involved with this, these murders. Tommy himself has maintained for years that he felt the police were somehow involved in the murders. I just have no idea how or which officers. But there are two reasons that I think this, and I will go into that later. The, the, the first is evidence that was potentially planted with the cops. They still had control of the crime scene. And there's evidence that evidence was planted during this time. And the second is an eyewitness who comes forward and says that they heard shots fired after a cop had arrived and parked in the rear of the store. But like I said, these are things we'll talk about later. It's just something burning in my mind. As I talk about the police at the scene and different police officers, I think, what if the police were involved? Could it be these people I'm talking about now? Maybe. Could it be somebody else? Maybe. Could it be none of them at all? Maybe. 
I don't know. Questions are flying through my mind, is all I'm saying. At the hospital, Thompson asks Tommy, Why? Tommy did not respond. Tom, Thompson asked, Was he trying to rob you? Tommy said, I think so. I'm sorry. The first question is Thompson's response to Tommy's allegation of who shot him was being Charlie Mays. So Thompson asks, Why? And then Tommy responds, You know, doesn't respond like, Uh. You know, I've just been shot in the gut. Let me be, dude. But anyway, Thompson says, was he trying to rob you? And Tommy says, I think so. Thompson asks, where's Charlie now? Back at the store, says Tommy. Thompson asks, did you shoot Charlie? Tommy replies, yes. I love Chief Thompson's ne next question. He had just asked, did you shoot Charlie? Tommy replied, yes. Next question. With what? Tommy responded, my gun. Yes, you see, I never expected he shot the gun. Oh, dear. Of course it was a gun, chief. <laughs> I mean, it just says, like, what'd you shoot him with? It was a gun, Chief Thompson. Okay. I, I don't know. I guess what is the question to ask at that point? But I feel like that's why bother asking a question. Anyway, according to Chief Thompson, Tommy loses awareness and he starts talking nonsense after this. I mean, he, Tommy had just taken a 38 to the belly. So, I mean, that will put you out. But questions arise later. Was Tommy actually talking nonsense? Or was he trying to tell Chief Thompson who else was in the store that night that attacked him? Was he just mentioning names that Chief Thompson didn't recognize? And that's why he thought it was nonsense? Because some of the stuff, when it comes out what he said, it actually was stuff that made sense. Because part of what he's saying is the, the, the stuff he'd been planning on picking up at the store to give to, to, to use as for the deliveries for the holidays. So was Tommy making sense or was Tommy not? I don't know because there's no good record of what he actually said. So this is where we will end today. We have Tommy's wife, Nina Ziegler, her parents, Perry and Virginia Edwards, and Charlie Mays dead inside the furniture store. Tommy Ziegler has a 38 caliber gunshot to his lower abdomen, and he has been rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. Next week, I will talk to you about how the investigators interpreted the crime scene, and I will discuss the so-called witnesses that come forward to accuse Tommy of murder.